job casting. Strapping people in rockets to wheels and seeing how much jelly we can make. With George Bendo, Unsong Lee, Josh Hayes, Monique Hanson, Nan Callum, Joel Williams, Helen Fraser and Fiona Healy. The job cast, March 2018, Expert Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josh and joining me in the studio today are Niall and Joel. Hi. Hello. Hello. Good to be Hi. on again. What? Yeah. Yeah, how are we doing? Pretty good, how yeah. are you? Yeah, I'm very well. I'm, I've inundated with work. As in, usual. Inundated <laughs> with work and I've just had a, a very, very sugary um, hot chocolate. So, I so you're going to be on form. Yeah, great. let's see how this goes. Um, so in the show this time, Unsung Lee and George Bendo answer your astronomical questions. And we interview Helen Fraser about laboratory astrophysics and astrochemistry. But before all that, Monique Henson talks to Dr. Adam Averson in this month's Job Bite. I'm here with Dr. Adam Averson from the University of Manchester. Welcome back to the Jodcast. Yep. <laughs> um, I think you, you must be one of the longest-running Jodcasters who's still here, right? I think I pro- probably am the longest-running one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I thought I'd catch for an interview, because I don't think you've been interviewed in at least a good five years. Yep. So I thought you could update us on what you've been doing since then. My job is sort of split two ways. One is working for the Alma Telescope in Chile, and the other bit, which is slightly smaller than a half, is when I do my own research, and that research is into massive star formation, so how stars eight times the mass of the sun and bigger form. On the side of, of research, in, in the past couple of years, I've been working on a specific object, this SDC-335, which houses one of the most massive star-forming cores in our galaxy. And we've been looking into what's going on there, actually using the ALMA telescope, so the other half of my job is quite handy for that. And we've been looking at the stars that are forming in there and how big they're going to be, and from that we can calculate how big this cloud, which is what this SDC-335 thing is, how many stars that's going to form when it finishes star formation, hundreds of thousands of years from now. I'm looking at the kinematics of what kind of outflows and disks are in that source is what what has been occupying my sort of research time since the last time I was interviewed. You were talking about you've been studying this particular object. So do you tend to find that massive stars all form in similar regions? Are those regions or objects very common? Massive stars are rarer than the low-mass stars, and there's a lot of evidence that shows that the size of the cloud that you start with determines the number of massive stars you get. So basically, if you've got a big cloud, then that will collapse, or parts of it will collapse, and in those clumps, you'll start to form cores, and if the clumps are big enough, then you'll get some massive stars forming there. So they're rarer, and which is annoying, because that means they're usually a bit further away than, than low-mass forming stars, but you can easily identify where the massive stars are forming, and that's something I did way back during my PhD, so there's these little little things there. Hundreds of AU across, but, or at least that's what we think. These things called masers, which is like lasers, but with an M, and there's a particular species of methanol maser, that emits at a certain frequency, and part of the work I did during my PhD was locating where these are throughout our galaxy. So basically we've got these neat little signposts saying, yeah, there's massive stars forming here, and massive stars forming here. Don't bother looking up there because there's no maser, so there's probably no massive stars. And a lot of people since have, have gone off and looked in low-mass star-forming regions to see if there's any of these masers, and there aren't, so we've got a nice definite signpost. So look here, so... Where do you get masers in high-mass that, that particular species of maser is what we call radiatively pumped, so it needs a certain kind of radiation and it, it's some infrared. You need a certain level of infrared photons and basically you don't get that in low-mass star-forming regions and the densities and, and other bits and pieces prevent the maser from occurring because it, it needs a quite a particular environment to exist in and that is linked to 
where massive stars form. So it's nice to have these nice little pinpoints throughout the galaxy to go, yeah, we should look there. And, and mm, yeah, handy yeah. signpost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what is different about the way that these massive stars form rather than more regular sized stars? We think, and astronomers in general, I mean, but not mm. just we here, think we understand how low mass stars form. So well, as I was saying, you've got these clouds and they, they fragment into clumps and then as things get smaller, you get these little cores and, and in those, basically, well, as you collapse, you get these spherical objects and you get an accretion disk around them and stars, the low mass stars form. So eventually, you know, the pressure increases and the density increases and then eventually hydrogen burning starts and you've got a star. For high mass stars, the problem is the amount of time it takes for the amount of mass that they eventually end up with to fall into one of these objects is longer than the time it takes for hydrogen burning to start, so fusion to start. And once that has started, then the output of photons should prevent anything else falling onto them. So the, the, the light coming out of this newly hydrogen burning star should basically push any matter away, uh, start ionizing things around it. We do find these massive stars. I think the record holder is something of 150 solar masses, so that's pretty large. There's, a, there's only one of those that mm-hmm. we know about. So there, there's, there are problems with our understanding, or our understanding is limited as to how massive stars form. So they are interesting objects and we are trying to figure out how you can go from, if, if you can scale up low mass, star formation and there must be some little mechanism that little trick that allows the massive stars to, to carry on forming to get their final mass or whether something completely different is happening so there's a few a few theories there one of them that i kind of like is that as they form they swell up and therefore they're not as dense and they're not as bright so they don't push back basically with the, the outputting radiation as much as they would if they were the densest they could be which means that they can carry on accreting mass it's an open question, and by studying some of their features, so when it starts forming, you, you re- regularly get a disk, and you also get what we call molecular outflow, so to conserve angular momentum, if you've got a disk throwing matter onto to the surface of a, a forming star, then you, you usually end up with molecular outflows coming out at the poles, which gets rid of some of this energy, and you can, they're huge in comparison to the, the star in the, the protostar in the, in the center that's, that's making them, so you can very easily study these things by looking at the energy and the sizes and, and things, you can figure out what must be going on in these very small regions that you can't really see with most telescopes. So it's kind of the work that I've been I've been doing over the past year or so, so looking at outflows. Hopefully that will be published by the end of this year. <laughs> and what have you learned so far from those outflows? The outflows that I'm looking at towards this particular object, is they, they seem fairly large and, and young compared to a lot of objects that have been seen before, which hopefully will indicate that we're looking at Something at the very early stages of its of its formation, meaning that we can sort of start to constrain what's going on at early times, and then we can compare it to things that are a bit older and, and see if there's any any evolutionary trends that we can we can see, and that will give us a better understanding of what's going on with these as the stars are forming. So it's interesting work. It's not quite finished, but it, it's getting there, and um, it's showing that the objects that we've been looking at are fairly interesting and fairly massive. So. Previously, we had limited them to be about 10 solar masses, but I think that is very much the lower end of how massive they are because they're still forming, so they've still got plenty of time to pack on some weight and be really massive objects. How do you figure out how massive they are? What we did for for that was we measured what we call the continuum flux at a a given frequency or a couple of frequencies. So that's all the light, and this is at radio wavelengths, all the light that isn't associated with molecular emission. So we have these uh, these these free electrons sort of 
whipping around in the, in the ionized hydrogen and, and the electrons are sort of freely moving and as they go past a, a proton then they sort of their path gets curved and a photon shoots out and we, we looked at this kind of emission and you can say from that the amount of that kind of emission you can say you can relate through certain laws that have been calculated so from the amount of free free emission that you can observe you can relate that to the number of photons that are needed to ionize the amount of gas and from that you can say basically if you had a star uh, a proper star like a, a fully fully realized evolved star that, that's on the main sequence if you had one of those how massive it would have to be so what we call a, a zero edge main sequence spectral type so just to recap that because it went quite long we measured something in the radio we could relate that to something at a different wavelength and that gives you characteristics about stars that we we have observed throughout the, the galaxy and one of the properties of those stars is we know its mass so we can say from our radio observations how massive the the, the protostars in the in the source are so we got we got a handful of things that are at a lower limit of about 10 solar masses so three of them so far and then we're pushing down to see if there's any other stars forming in that core well, the question that pops straight into my mind is that how do you know that that protostar is like the other ones you see on the main sequence that is sort of the uh, the conceit we have there. It's basically, we have this bit of information and the best we can say about what we think it is at this current time is that it, it will it is behaving like one of these actual stars. So, uh, but as I said, they, they, these things are fairly young, so they've got plenty of time to, to keep evolving. And I think my current uh, opinion of what's going on uh, towards some of these stars is that they're, they're not going to be that mass when they're finished they're going to be much bigger there's a lot of material still in the cloud to be accreted and yeah they could end up fairly big so that's interesting if only i was going to be around in ten thousand years to figure out (laughs) (laughs) just watch it all happen that'd be glorious so you originally mentioned that one of the theories about how these massive stars form you were saying that they the material is less dense nearby so would you be able to observe any consequences of that theory and are you able to study it I'm not sure that we're capable of observing it right now because if this theory that they do swell up is correct, then they're, they're still very, very small. The current resolution of some of the telescopes we're using is, is well, you can easily resolve things that are milli arc seconds. So that's thousandths of arc seconds, and an arc second is 1,360th of a degree. So they're, they're fairly small on the sky, but the other problem is we have observed, for example, recently ALMA, the telescope that I, I spend most of my time working for, has, has resolved the surface of Betelgeuse, which yeah, is wow. very cool. That's a that's a star at the end of its life. It's sort of got this mottled, asymmetric surface. That's because lumps of it are falling off, basically, or coming off. So we can we can sort of see the surface of those kind of evolved stars, but for protostars, even if they're sort of puffed out, they'll still be, I think a little bit too small for, for observing with current instruments and also the the energy outputs at the brightness of them at wavelengths where we're capable so radio wavelengths is going to be so low that it's going to be very difficult if not impossible with current instruments to uh, to observe them so too faint and too small yeah basically mm-hmm. it's always the problem yeah and I suppose <laughs> you're saying if you've got these massive outflows which are much much bigger than them yeah. they're going to dwarf anything yeah so anything. they're nice and handy <laughs> You said that you spend just less than half of your time on your research and yep. you spend the rest of your time working with ALMA. So what kind of things do you do with ALMA? 
I'm one of the UK Alma support scientists, so there's an office literally across the building from where we are, where myself and George, who people will know from the Jogcast, and, and Anita, one of our other colleagues, basically are, provide user support for the Alma telescope in Chile to the UK astronomical community. So anyone who wants to use Alma is free to come and ask us questions and we will help them sort of prepare to use, to use Alma. So to get time on any telescope nowadays, you need to write a proposal and say, I want to observe this source. Here's the really good scientific reason. So these are the questions we're going to answer. Please give us time. And also usually in those proposals, here is why your telescope is the only telescope that can possibly do this, uh, this science. So we help them write those, and, and part of what I do is I run a simulator for ALMA so people can say, look, we think this is what the thing in the sky looks like. What would ALMA see if we could we could observe it? And they just fill in a web form, basically, and hit go in a little box outside my office, turns through the numbers and sends them back an image and goes, look, it's going to look really good because everything with ALMA looks really good. So we do that kind of stuff. And then another thing which is slightly different from how telescopes have behaved in the past, though, is sort of the coming thing with ALMA is so once you've got your time and you've done all the the preparation and and written a little schedule so what should be observed when you also say I want the image to have a particular sensitivity so I want to be able to see objects to this level and so the background noise needs to be at this lower level and what we do is we do basically quality assurance so the data comes off the telescope and then it goes the telescope's in Chile it goes to Santiago the the capital of Chile then gets sent, if it's European, it gets sent to ESO, which is based just outside of Munich. And then it gets sent to us if it's someone in the UK or someone who's specifically asked for us to work on their data. And we sit and we process the data and we make images and we check that the sensitivity requirements are met, make sure there's nothing wrong with the data, like like the an antenna was pointing the wrong way or something, which never happens. <laughs> and yeah, so we we do that, which is kind of, really awesome because we get to see all these cool results before even the people that proposed for them got to see them so I've seen some really nice things which I'm not allowed to talk about because they're probably not published yet but Alma makes some amazing images of things from well things in our own solar system all the way out to so the the record holder I think for Alma is a look back time of 13.2 billion years so that's, what? Yeah, I know. I, don't know. I, thought, <laughs> I think of Alma as a very local yeah, yeah, instrument. So, so, yeah, yeah, I wish I could remember the name of the object, mm-hmm. but it's got some really obscure serial number rather than having a proper name. But basically, there's a, if you go onto almaobservatory.org, which is sort of the public-facing Alma website, and go through the press releases, there's these really nice Hubble images. So it's a Hubble image that's got all these beautiful galaxies all in the optical with you. You can see you know, uh, lensed galaxies. And then right in the top corner, highlighted by a box, is this sort of faint red smudge. And that's the armor <laughs> detection. But it's really, it's, it's really early universe stuff. So that's, Ooh. yeah. So we get to see all kinds of, of cool things. Yeah. Hey, that's incredible. And to be honest, everything I hear about Alma blows my mind. I remember when someone kind of, who was leading the Alma project came and gave a talk and they were talking about when they built, and um, when they were building the telescopes and they had the processing units nearby, all the fans kept breaking. Oh, yeah. At such high altitudes. Yeah. <laughs> and just all, all of the kind of little things they had to think about. And even the fact that, you know, you've got this quality assurance yeah. process. It sounds like a small thing, but from given that, you know, there's quite a lot of radio astronomers here, and I hear the pain of going through that process yes. and you kind of take <laughs> that away. Yeah, so like during my PhD, I, I used a telescope, the Australia Telescope Compact Array, and what you did is you went and observed, which is another thing you don't do with Alma. Someone else observes everything for you. You went to this telescope in Australia, did your observations. You got some raw data, gigabytes and gigabytes of it. 
you put it on a memory stick, you flew back, and then you spent weeks and weeks afterwards processing it. Or at least I did until I learned how it worked properly. I think if you're a professional, you can well, you can do it fairly quickly. I can do that kind of stuff, you know, in a day now. But you know, it's it's a steep learning curve when you're a student. So mm. um, having that kind of data all sort of processed at least a one pass, so that you know that everything's okay, and you've got what we call scripts, so bits of code that will run you through each step that you need to do. If you want to go back and make different things with Alma data, you just take one of these and tweak some parameters, and it's, it's all sort of, you know that basically the right thing's coming out at the end. It's very handy. It means that we've now got, Alma's now got this big archive of data that people can go and mine, and rather than having to propose, which is good, seeing as how competitive it is to get time on Alma. It was oversubscribed by about seven times, so every wow. every, every one hour available on the telescope seven people wanted it basically <laughs> but i mean no wonder yeah. <laughs> given everything you've just described yeah. um, it sounds like a much much less painful experience than yeah. <laughs> any other telescope so you said you know you've, you get to have a glimpse at some of these results before they come out yep. are there any highlights that have come out that you're allowed to talk about some of the very early data this wasn't something that i'd processed but it was something that an equivalent of, of what we do in Manchester in the Alma office uh, there is an equivalent in a whole bunch of countries and, and in, in, this, in this particular case there's the equivalent office in Sweden and one of the uh, people that do or did what I do over there got some time on Alma and it was very early on looking at this evolved star called Arscub Taurus and they were expecting to see some carbon monoxide emissions so that's one of the things Alma's really good at finding is carbon monoxide it's everywhere in the, in the galaxy they're expecting to see a ring because this evolved star is sort of blowing off outer shells of its gas. And what they found when they got their armor results was they found the ring that they, they were looking for and they could see the, the CO near the surface of the star. But also between the outer ring and sort of where the central star is, there was this nice spiral pattern coming out of the, oh, of, wow. the of the central region right out to this outer ring. And they had no idea. Well, they they'd not expected that to exist at all. And... They spent ages basically trying to get rid of it. Like, this must be some sort of imaging artifact. Because ALMA is, the telescope itself is, is an interferometer, so it's made of lots of little telescopes scattered around the desert in the Atacama. And basically, it is in kind of a spiral pattern. Uh, oh. And they were like, well, is this sort of related to how the, the telescope is set out on the, on the ground? And so you can introduce those kind of artifacts. Like, if you ever see a, a VLA image, so from the Very Large Array, that's on a, a Y shape, and if you get data and do a very bad job of making images, you'll end up with like stripes and, and things that look kind of like a Y shape pattern. So they spent a long time, that's if you do a bad job, which, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's easy to get rid of. So they spent a lot of time basically trying to get rid of this spiral, and in the end, they decided that they couldn't get rid of it because it was real. So they were very excited about this. Like, we've got this nice spiral thing coming out of this, at the, the central region, and, and the reason that they put behind it was. Basically, there's there's this old star, Ascultaurus, and it must have a companion that is not quite as uh, evolved or orbiting it, and that is sort of funneling the gas and creating this spiral that's just coming out. So there was an unexpected result, and it created one of Alma's sort of earliest and most uh, spectacular sort of press release images. It's really mm. nice spirally sort of rose-coloured image that they put out. So that was one really cool thing. Yeah, no, that sounds wonderful. God, that must have been a nightmare. Then <laughs> when they got yeah, it, yeah. they were spending all that time trying to rule out yeah. that it's not just an artefact. So we, we, we have what's called an all-hands meeting where everyone in Europe who works on Alma gets together and they presented this before they submitted it to any journals or anything. I'm just like, anyone have any ideas how to get rid of this? I don't think it's real. <laughs> and then, you know, we got an email a few months later going, yeah, we, we, we can't get rid of it. It's definitely real. This is kind of cool. <laughs> How good is Alma? 
Yeah, no, that is that's pretty impressive. Going back to your research, so you said you're working on a publication at the moment, mm-hmm. um, but what are you looking forward to over the next few years in your field of Master's Star Formation? What's going to be quite exciting is next July, one of these semi-regular big Massive Star Formation conferences is happening. It's exciting and slightly terrifying because we're organising it this time, so uh, <laughs> we just hopefully booked a hotel and stuff, but that is that is going to be a, a time when you know people are really showing what they're up to right now. So um, yeah, that's going to be the the big thing in the next year. So hopefully that we'll see some stuff on sort of magnetic fields because it's the old joke in, in astronomy talks: you wait until the end and then just put your hand up and go, "What about the magnetic fields?" Uh, every topic. Every single. Yeah. It doesn't matter what topic it is. Alma has started doing polarization observations, so oh. you'll be able to start measuring magnetic fields. Hopefully, around in these regions, magnetic fields are probably going to be the big interesting thing, and, and people will then have to come up with a new joke <laughs> question at the end of talks. Are they expected to be dynamically significant? Like, are they expected to be important in those regions? Yes. So, part of possibly part of what shapes the the outflows could be related to magnetic fields. Also, the magnetic fields within clouds can have an effect on the turbulence, which affects how they fragment and clump. So those are going to be fairly important results when they start coming out. So currently, I think the best sort of some of the best polarized images of the galaxy on a large scale is the Planck telescope. Mm. On the scales we want to look at, it's not quite not quite ideal. So that's coming with with Alma, and I think sort of the JVLA is probably going to be doing stuff like that as well. So it's going to be an interesting interesting sort of avenue of research over the next couple of years is what we're going to find out when that starts becoming commonplace rather than the rarity that it is now. Um, it'll also be interesting to see because that problem of how magnetic field shape outflows isn't just specific to star formation either. That's something you see in different areas. Of oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you get it through in radio jets from active galactic nuclei and, mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff. So that should be pretty, pretty interesting. The other sort of not specific to my research massive difference in size scales but hopefully next year the observations have been taken with ALMA. ALMA joined up uh, with a whole bunch of telescopes around the world to create what is known as the Event Horizon Telescope to try and observe the Event Horizon of the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. I believe some or all of the data has been taken and people are looking at it to see if they can image, if it's good enough quality to do this, this sort of snapshot of the central region and, and see what we can see towards this black hole. So that'll be a fairly interesting result when it comes out. I don't know when that's going to be, but it should be within the next year. So that's going to mm. be... No, that, cool. I mean, that, that'll be a world-leading yeah. thing, really. Yeah. It's something that's not really been done before, no, as far no, as I'm no. aware. No, so. it's, it, I, it's the first. It's a world first, so that'll be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, so the next year has got lots of lots to come, really. Yes, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, <laughs> then well, I need a holiday. Yeah, <laughs> you have a nice long break next winter. Yeah, <laughs> great. Well, thank you for talking to us again. Cool. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that, Monique. Now Fiona interviews Helen Fraser about laboratory astrophysics and astrochemistry. So I'm here today with Dr. Helen Fraser um, from the Open University, and she's visiting us here at the department this week um, to participate in the STSC Summer School, which the University of Manchester is hosting. And that's basically all I know. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hi, Helen. So do you want to give yourself a slightly better introduction than what I've given you? Okay, there? yeah. So, so actually, I was an undergraduate here in Manchester, so I'm going through a complete reminisce thing here at the moment. Oh, my goodness. I know. It's so weird. I, I worked out this morning. 
um, that it's 26 years since I started here as an undergraduate. And I always consider myself quite young. Suddenly <laughs> that's made me feel really old because that's more years than the age I was when I got here. <laughs> Goodness. Well, do you find it much changed? A lot changed. The city has changed. I mean, lots of things have changed. But um, the department has changed and it's not changed. So... Um, I actually have very fond memories of cycling my bike along Upper Brook Street and Oxford Road and Brunswick Street. And I could still walk into the physics department at the front and I could still remember where the toilets were and the office <laughs> in my tutorials. And um, I took really great pleasure this morning as I went in to, um, to listen to the earlier lectures before mine in the summer school in sitting in the exact spot where I sat in my first year undergraduate lecture. Oh, goodness. Did you have a favourite spot? I did. Uh, there, was, there was a group of us and we all sat in a certain place all of the time. Oh, really? It really was. Everyone had their... Real creatures of habit. And, mm-hmm. and as I went in the lecture theatre, that all came back to me. It was really funny. Oh, I know it's not you. a psychology interview, but uh, uh, absolutely amazing. Although they're slightly more comfy now because they're all pink and cushioned oh, instead really? of wooden. And, uh, oh, goodness. Slamming down. Yeah, with the, and the low that. table. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel today I've really um, achieved one of those great lifetime ambitions. You know, oh. when I was an undergraduate and thought I might want to be an academic, I always had this vision I might one day come back to Manchester and lecture to a a room full of students, and, and there it was. I oh, was, my goodness, oh, and now you're fulfilling your I dream. Know, that's it's, so it feels a little bit like that, yeah. That's cool, that's yeah. great. And they all seem to be listening as well, which was even better. <laughs> so glad to hear it. So, so we, um, on that note, do you want to tell us a bit about what you were talking to the students about? So, yeah, so I do laboratory astrophysics. Okay. Well, I'm an astrochemist, per se, okay. which means I ask about where are the molecules in the universe, right. particularly the near universe, so in our own galaxy. Huh? And the answer to that, let's get to the answer to that first, is that they are in regions where stars and planets are forming, mostly. Okay. And molecules can tell us a lot. They can tell us about physical conditions in space environments, but they can also tell us about chemistry. And chemistry is one of the things that has an impact into the star and planet formation process. So we like to understand the chemistry by combining observations with theory and with lab work. So so when you say lab work, because that's a completely foreign concept to me, and I think to most people here in this department. Um, Maybe in the astronomy department, though. If we look at well, the physics yeah, department exactly. as a whole. The physics department, different. not yeah. so much. Yeah, yeah. But for us, certainly, you know, we hear lab work and we just picture people kind of in white coats with test tubes. And oh, yeah, that happens over the road in the chemistry yeah, department. Yeah, yeah, we don't go over there. Yeah, I, well, it's kind of quite interesting, isn't it? Because actually in the physics department, they do quite a lot yes. of uh, lab yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you have the graphene people now, but I mean, also still left over from when I was here a long time ago. There's uh, condensed matter research and mm-hmm. photonics research mm-hmm. and things like that. But what we do in laboratory astrophysics actually spreads across atomic and molecular physics, nuclear physics, particle physics. But what I'm particularly interested in is ice. Okay. Solid material. So it's like condensed matter physics. Okay. And we really try and recreate the conditions of space. Right. In the lab. So low pressures mm-hmm. and low temperatures, mm-hmm. like you find in star-forming regions. Yep. And then in this controlled laboratory environment, we try and understand the chemical processes that happen to condensed material, right. um, the physical processes that happen, how we form it, how it gets destroyed again. Okay. And also we look at its spectroscopy, because that's what you get when you're observing okay. things. So you can look at the spectra of some material in the lab and that presumably helps you know more about spectra that you observe. Yeah, I mean, often actually what we need, what I was talking to the students about this morning was I was actually talking to them about when you're observing something at a telescope, you know, you get all this light of some kind from the electromagnetic spectrum, where does it come from? Even people who are looking at galaxies with the 21 centimetre line, actually it's a 
it's a data transition. It's to do with hydrogen. Uh-huh. It's to do with spectroscopy. Uh-huh. It's to do with uh-huh. quantum mechanics. Uh-huh. And whereas the astronomers use that to talk about the astronomy, the lab astro people and the astrochemists, we kind of step behind it and say, yeah, but what are you looking at? What is it? What causes that? What Why is that happening? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's kind of interesting. Sometimes we hear about processes of recombination, how okay. atoms and, and electrons recombine and, yeah. and uh, or ions and electrons recombine. We hear about how we form molecules like water or carbon monoxide. And we use those very often in astronomy to visualise what we're seeing. So um, just going back for a minute to something you mentioned a second ago that piqued my interest. Uh, you said you were especially interested in ice. Yes. So yes. what kind of ice is there in star forming regions? Ah, that's an excellent question. Well, the most abundant ice is water ice. Right. But it's not the kind of stuff you might find in your fridge. Yeah. So you open the fridge door, you want to put it in your whiskey. Yeah. Not really that not kind the of same. ice. Not the same. Not the same, So the ice is formed by chemical reactions on the surfaces of dust grains in space. Ah, dust, dust is the bane of the astronomer's life. Oh, yeah. people here love dust, though. I love saying. dust. Yeah, dust I love is dust. cool. Dust is pretty cool. I love yeah. dust, but I think a lot of uh, amateur astronomers who might be listening maybe don't like dust so much because <laughs> what they want to see. But if we're not looking in the visible part of the spectrum, dust is cool. Right. And this dust is cold, maybe 10 Kelvin, that's minus 263 degrees centigrade. Okay. And what happens is, if we've already formed a molecule, like water, it condenses. You know, a bit like you get frost on your car in the morning? Yeah. That kind of ice is, it has a structure called hexagonal ice. So if you think of hexagons, Uh all the hydrogens and oxygens are arranged in hexagons. Right. This ice is, in space, is completely what we call amorphous. It has no structure at all. Oh, that's fascinating. Think of a sponge. (laughs) Okay. sponge. That's exactly the kind of structure it has. So spongy ice. And, I mean, does that happen because of the conditions that it's in, in space? Absolutely. It's absolutely governed by the temperature and the pressure. Okay. And water dominates, but there are lots of other molecular species. It's why we call it condensed matter. Right. Because it really is frozen out stuff. That's what that uh, means. i got to say, we're in pretty terrifying territory for me at the moment, because (laughs) I did not do well in my condensed matter modules at university. (laughs) I ran as far away from that as I could. (laughs) I I quite enjoyed it, so luckily. Yeah, I can see. That's good. (laughs) But there are lots of things, like carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide is in the gas. Mm-hmm. It's something a lot of people at Jodrell and other places use quite a lot yeah. to image star-forming regions, planetary discs, uh-huh. yeah. extra-galactic yeah. sources. Sure. And in actual fact, if the densities get high enough in star-forming regions or the temperatures get low enough, even carbon monoxide can sort of freeze out, we call right. it. That's the technical term okay. we use. Okay. It condenses and it forms a molecular solid, solid carbon dioxide ice. Ice. That happens at about 21 Kelvin, okay. well, give or take, let's say 20, 21, which is minus 253 degrees centigrade. Right. So, pretty cold. Yeah. Cold in Manchester. Colder than my freezer. <laughs> Colder than your freezer, that's definitely true. <laughs> um, so, so when, you're, when you're working on this in the lab, can, do you replicate the, the amorphous ice in the lab? We try to. Okay. Yes, yes. How's that going? To. Oh, well, it goes very well. We've been, I've been doing it now for about 20 years. So okay. That's shocking. Um, <laughs> but we, we have very good recipes for how to how to make the ice and how to grow the ice. Okay. Actually, there are a lot of fundamental things. So often, people like myself, we, we sometimes find ourselves in astronomy worlds. We sometimes find ourselves in chemistry worlds. Okay. And we sometimes find ourselves in physics worlds. And still, there are lots of big discussions about the exact yeah. structure of the, the ice. Yeah. But from an astronomy perspective, the really interesting thing is, uh, okay, we're talking on a, on a sort of 
angstrom nanometer scale that right. the ice looks like a sponge. Right, okay. But what that means is it's got lots of holes and voids in it uh-huh. in which you can trap gases. I see. And so it, it acts like an absorption pump. It takes a big reservoir of all the gases all around. And basically what that means is it hides things from the gas phase. So when we look at star formation, there are lots of processes going on, velocity processes, drift processes, ionization processes, and chemical processes. Uh All the processes that affect star formation and planet formation, actually, because it's kind of a byproduct, they all occur on similar timescales. And if in a chemical reaction you take a reagent out of the equation, if you like, if you hide it away in a box somewhere, Mm -hmm. which is the ice. Or in the ice, yeah, okay. (laughs) Basically. um, Then basically you change what can happen. You change how things can cool. You change how energy can be distributed. Right. That has a huge impact on everything else that's going on. Okay. So this thing becomes really important in understanding sort of the synergy of the bigger picture. I see. In modern star formation techniques, when we're trying to model what's going on, we often combine chemical models with hydrodynamic yeah, models. Yeah. Lots of complicated things. I yeah. can't do it. But, then, <laughs> but these modelers, they really want numbers. They want to know, yeah, when does it get hidden, these gases, at it's what okay. temperatures, yeah, at what yeah, pressures. Yeah, yeah. We determine those things in the lab. So uh-huh. we get to tinker in the lab and do some very fundamental chemistry and physics. And then throw it all back in a in a process which astronomers can understand. Yeah, so then it essentially becomes a factor that can be put into these models. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, cool. And then the other side of it, of course, is when I go and make observations, because I also make observations. I've used a lot the Akari satellite. It was a Japanese infrared satellite, uh, which okay. came sort of around the time of Spitzer, a little right, bit later. Right. But it worked in the near-infrared, so the 2 to 5 micron region. Yeah, because so dust is all about infrared, really, isn't it? Dust yeah. is about infrared, but often when we look at dust, we look a little bit longer wavelength. So right. people might have been used to seeing from the Spitzer Space Telescope, uh-huh. that worked between 5 and 20 microns, the short wavelength. Yeah. That told us a lot about the dust. But all the key ice features, what we're looking at in this infrared region is the stretching vibrations of the bonds in the molecules. Uh, okay. And all the key features are between 2 and 5 microns, the stretches of an oxygen and hydrogen bond, a carbon monoxide bond, carbon dioxide bond. Mm-hmm. So we use this Akari, this Japanese satellite, to really look at that and try and map the distribution of ice in the sky. Uh. But, you know, life is never simple in astronomy, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Don't I know it. (laughs) You can can look and you can go, okay, we've got a picture, we've seen there's some ice there. Uh But actually, as astronomers, we want to ask the question, how much ice is there? And that's not an easy question to answer because spectra of ices change according to how they're mixed with other chemicals, temperature, Uh how much stuff we have on the surface. So in the lab, we have to do a lot of control experiments so we understand how the spectroscopy changes. Uh And then we have to put that back into understanding and interpreting our observations. Yes. And what we get out at the other end is normally a column density or an abundance, or if you like, it's like a concentration, really. Right. I talk sure. in chemistry languages or whatever everyone <laughs> at home might understand. And it's just how much of it we've got there. Okay. But actually what's really, really amazing, almost everywhere we look where we do find ice, uh-huh. is when we look at how much we have. Let's just consider water ice for a minute because it's easier. So we know these molecular clouds that form stars and planets, they're composed predominantly of molecular hydrogen gas. Yes. H2. Yeah. Actually, the next most abundant molecule we find there is the water that's in the ice. Even though we can't see it very easily, 
because we have to observe it in the solid state in absorption. Yes. And, of course, what we do, we observe all these other things. You, you read these stories in the press about glycine or amino acids yeah. or ethanol yes. or carbon monoxide, all these interesting chemicals yes. that are all emitting in the gas phase. And, yes. and most of them are there because chemistry has happened in the, on the ice and in the ice. Everything's been kicked off back to the gas uh-huh. phase. Uh-huh. So this huge molecular reservoir we have in star-forming regions, all down to the ice. Well, that is amazing. That's really fascinating. Um, so before we wrap it up, I want to ask you something kind of unrelated. Uh, Great. I like unrelated. Uh, yeah. yeah. So just <laughs> something I'm a little bit curious about. So you're, you're um, with the Open University. And I don't know a whole lot about that institution. So where are you actually based? Okay. So in the Open University, we're based in Milton Keynes. All of our postdocs okay. and our PhD students, we all and the academics, we all exist in a real physical building. Okay, because <laughs> I was kind of picturing you just sort of up in the clouds. We're not that ethereal yet, <laughs> evading everyone's mind. Right. No, we're all very much based there, and okay. our labs are based there, and that's where we do our research. Right. Unless, of course, we're at a telescope. But yes. as you know, these days when we go observing, we're normally yes. sat at our computer at our desk. It's true. Days. It's true. <laughs> Romantic. Yep. <laughs> but our undergraduate students who also study astronomy, you know, the Open University um, trains more astronomy undergraduate students than any other institution in the United Kingdom. No way, year. that's amazing. Yes way. So we have a huge number. So hi out there, anyone from the OU who's listening, a <laughs> uh, little plug there. But um, we, our undergraduate students work by distance learning. Yes. So they work with online courses, maybe books, and they have local tutors. And so as academics, we're doing a lot of the preparation behind the scenes and running the, helping to run the courses. And uh, And do you like record lectures or do you just send out notes? No, we don't. It's something I really miss, I must admit. (laughs) Before I was there, I was um, in Strathclyde University and I used to love, really love face-to-face lecturing with the undergraduates, something I really miss. Yeah. Something I really enjoyed today when I came back to the Oh, good. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. Well, anyway, so uh, that was Dr. Helen Fraser telling us about Space Ice and the, the Open University. And uh, I'm going to wrap this up now because we have an STSC summer school dinner to get to. Yes, we have to go and have, have our drinks. We do have to go have our drinks. A little bit of our, alcohol with ice. Our gins and tonics with ice. <laughs> <laughs> but not amorphous ice. No, not amorphous ice. That wouldn't be good for us. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Helen. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Pat Fiona. Right. It's odds and end time. Uh, so this is the bit where we fit in um, all the stuff that we can't really fit anywhere else because it's sort of the weird stuff. So um, completely departing from the tradition of being weird stuff, uh, Niall is uh, going to attempt to shed some light on the first light. <laughs> um, I like what you did there. Thank you. Okay, so this isn't really my area of work, so you'll have to bear with me because I'm probably going to mess up a bit, but... Anyway, what I've uh, had a look at and brought along with me is that it appears that astronomers have seen the first light that's come from stars in our universe, um, and they've measured this using a radio telescope, uh, the EDGES telescope in uh, Australia, uh, where they've been looking for the 21 centimetre hydrogen line. Uh, essentially, what they've measured is the uh, this like remnant light from these first stars that were formed... I think about 13.6 billion years ago. When you consider that we believe the age of the universe to be about 13.8 billion years, it's pretty darn close to the start. When you when you say this is the first light, is this before or after the CMB is uh, 
So this will be after the CMB. So the, the CMB is um, released approximately 380,000 years uh, post the Big Bang, um, whereas this would be, say, a, a few million, a couple million years after, uh, rather than uh, just those 380,000 years. So the CMB is like the remnant light from the uh, Big Bang, essentially, where the photons have decoupled from charged particles and leave this sort of... Uh, characteristic signature of the early universe um, but after that we have the dark ages for a period of time um, which is then followed by the creation of the first stars uh, which was approximately 180 million years uh, after the big bang uh, so I've just looked that up okay. um, and uh, essentially the, so, so the fact that they've seen this this is like unprecedented we've not managed to see light from these first stars before but now we have um, and also, uh, there are hints at this possibly showing interaction between baryons and dark matter. Uh, so the um, signal that they measured was actually a bit cooler than one would expect. Uh, and a way you can explain this is if there were an interaction between the baryons and the dark matter, it would mean that the scattering processes that occurred would, would change, essentially. Um, so the light from the first stars would have a slightly different characteristic signal. Uh, so this is really exciting, actually, because up until now, dark matter's only been measured by gravitational effects. Mm. Um, so, say, if you have a galaxy, uh, you can measure uh, what you'd expect the matter to be doing in terms of its, say, velocity distribution. Um, and we find, actually, that in certain galaxies that it's much higher out to, like, further radii than we expect. Uh, and that's due to dark matter, um, or well, what we propose as dark matter. Yes. Uh, which is one of these uh, things like that's abundant in the universe, but we don't actually know anything about it. Like, yeah. Uh, so the um, when we say that the the this this earliest light has interacted with the dark matter, is this something that actually why why do we see it then and not now? Like is is there is there thoughts as to the processes have changed or it was because of the the energies so, of the universe? Rather than it being the light interacting, it's the, the, the interactions between the baryons and the uh, dark matter particles. Oh, so the so, baryons being the, the actual particles? Yes, yeah, the, the actual particles of matter, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you, the light would interact with them, but uh, but not the dark matter, based on the theories that we're going yeah. off at oh, the moment. Oh, it's isn't it? Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay, yeah. um, but if there's interaction between the baryons and the dark matter, this will cause like this signal to change. Um, the reason it's evident there is because the velocity distributions were much lower back then in comparison to now, um, which is a sort of remnant of the expansion of the universe, um, which means that the signal would be like changed most at that point, if that makes sense, in oh, terms so like relatively. Oh, um, so is it? Wait, sorry, when you say the velocity distribution was lower, do you mean that? the average speed of everything was lower, or do you mean that the, distribu the, the, the distribution of objects narrower is, mm -hmm. uh, the distribution of those objects is, is smaller? Is smaller, okay. Yeah. So they'll, they'll have been at, say, a higher speed, but they'll all have been a very similar high speed, rather than... Not necessarily the speeds change as such, but because of the fact that there's an expansion, it's sort of spread out more. Uh, so it's to do with uh, like the fact that space-time's expanding, mean, meaning that the interactions change essentially as you, the universe expands. Every now and again I forget I'm sat opposite two cosmologists <laughs> and I'm sat here going, I look at 
planets. <laughs> I deal with things. Planets. planets are great. Yeah, I know, but I deal with things here and now. <laughs> <laughs> you can have like nice artist impressions of planets that people get really excited about. You can't do that for the CMB. You can. You get like you the bike map. The bike map's pretty pretty. <laughs> That's no, very true. You can, right. you can draw so many pictures in it. True. Like That's it's, true. It's, it's like make your own dot to dot. I mean, some people do, and they call it science. So yeah, I won't allude to who. I've seen, I've seen your piece, Niall. <laughs> <laughs> sure, let's. Yeah, it's probably better to stab at me than it is to other people. So. Um, great. Uh, so yeah, so that basically sums up like the, the you know the exciting part of this. Like, if it would be another indirect way of detecting dark matter, not just gravitationally. Um, I mean, this is the first uh, observation of it, so it'll need follow-ups doing... I think um, they were talking about the possibility that the SKA might be able to be used with with its sort of single-dish um, plans for the 21-centimetre line. Um, they haven't been built specifically for this, though, so yes. whether they have as good a um, way of, like, getting rid of the foregrounds and stuff is, a, is another matter. Um, so basically in astrophysics you quite often, especially at radio, you have a lot of different signature foregrounds from, uh, from our galaxy and from dust in the, uh, sort of in the atmosphere and, um, and interstellar dust as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, essentially it will, uh, mean that there are issues in trying to get these signals. Um, in fact, I went to a talk the other day which was talking about how the fact that we have satellites orbiting Earth which are um, basically firing signals out at certain radio frequencies. This can also interfere with what the SK is going to view. Oh yeah. Um, so they have to also be accounted for. So there's all sorts of issues when it comes to measuring this with an interferometer or with this where it, where it hasn't been necessarily you know, keyed into look into this specifically. But, but there is, you know, there are some follow-up experiments will be coming hopefully soon. Yes, I, I would. I would touch wood or knock on wood. But yes, every, everything is padded. Yeah. Um, for a scientific <laughs> podcast, so we probably yeah. shouldn't be. Uh, hey, would you? Yeah, some, some of yeah. us are Oh, if we're lucky. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've been asked if I'm an astrologer so many times. Okay, that's true. So, if you can't beat them. <laughs> I, mean, I might not go with that, but come yeah. on. <laughs> I mean, it sort, of, it, it sort of indicates how how sort of important these these discoveries are by the fact that this is a paper in Nature and, um, mm, and not in it's a really really high brow journal essentially. Yeah, so yeah. it's uh, it's really something yeah. important. You don't get into Nature by you know just producing a load of rubbish. Exactly, exactly. Or, or producing the stuff that we tend to produce, which yes. goes into the other the astronomical journals. Generally. Yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> So it's quite, it's very exciting basically to sum up. So, yes, uh, I'll post links to the, um, to the papers in the write-up as well. So Excellent. if anyone fancies a look at the papers, which I, even I was struggling to understand. Well, I, I, my understanding um, is that they're not full papers either. Are no, they? they're letters, yeah. So they're quite short and, yeah. you know, they're missing a bit, but it, it's almost as though they've tried to get it out as fast as possible. Yeah, um, I, I, I was, I was talking to someone about this and, um, they were saying something to the effect of, I mean, I have not read these papers and this is well outside of my field, but um, they were saying there was a point where they they outlined their data analysis and said, this was our original data, posted the original data and said this was the end data, and then someone tried to take their end data and undid everything, and it wasn't the same data as um, 
they said that they started with so there's some discrepancy there's some discrepancy going on but it may well just be because there are letters they've done something else yes and not actually and not, in, uh, and not yeah. actually there'll yeah, be some subtlety exactly. in the analysis um, that um yeah, we know, know we know that we all know too well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that sounds really cool, um, and I'm sure we will mention this again um, on the Jodcast at some point. Certainly hope so. Um, yes, right, Joel, um, you've got something terrifying to tell us. <laughs> yes, um, the Chinese Chang'an One space station. I have probably not pronounced that right. Is hurtling towards Earth. Oh, it's no. going to crash. Oh, no. It's going to burn. It's going to be... All sorts of bits are going to fall all over the world. Do I need to get a hard hat? No. You have more chance of winning the Parable jo- uh, Lottery Jackpot than you do of being hit by a Chinese space station. I've won that twice, though, so... Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're the it's like being struck by lightning twice. Yeah. If you're the type who's luckily winning the Parable Jackpot quite a lot, then I'd stay indoors. But otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, you're probably all right. Yes, the um, the Chinese space station is, um, has basically served its served its time in space, and uh, they're bringing it down because it, obviously you don't want to leave these objects up in space because they create more problematic space debris, and so you want to try and um, burn them up in the atmosphere as much as possible. And interference for us astronomers yes. as well. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, as Carl was saying, with the SKA is being affected quite heavily by a lot of communication satellites yeah so it's, it's interesting cause there's a lot a lot of stuff comes crashing down to earth from space a lot of stuff we put up there so over the past 50 years um, more than 5,900 tons or 5,400 metric tons of space debris has survived re-entry into earth's atmosphere we don't want to get hit by that we will survive <laughs> re-entry yeah yeah oh. with no incidents <laughs> except for one the Williams incident which um, might I don't think the rest of this article mentions, but um, yeah, the Williams the Williams incident. Um, Nile to Google. Nile to Google. <laughs> yeah, there's this Williams incident. Oh yeah, no. Uh, no, it isn't. It isn't this. Wasn't um, this one oh, okay. where some dude's dog got hit or something? No, in 1997, a small piece of Delta II rocket hit uh, a woman named Lot named uh, Lottie Williams. In Heads up, Lottie is yep. the first Google in entry. Yep. <laughs> a resident of Oklahoma on the shoulder. Oh, she was okay? She was absolutely fine. Okay, she was okay. uninjured. So how, did it say how heavy this part was? Was, it like, it was there a lot of it left? Or? <laughs> Do you think it was hailing slightly weirdly? <laughs> like, oh, that was odd. Well, it must have been big oh, it's metal. Yeah, I mean, it must have been big enough to identify as a piece of rocket, but small enough not to uh, injure her. It just had a mail to address on it. But yeah, she's the only person on record to be hit with a piece of human-made space debris. So depending on how much you believe wired articles, it was apparently six inches long, the fragment. That's a, that's a hefty piece of metal, actually. Yeah, it's surprising that didn't... Mm. Depending on how thin it is. Well, well it's well, aluminium, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's, it's aluminium, and also there's, the, there's, that, there's mm-hmm. the old myth of if you, dro- if you go to the top of the Empire State Building and drop yeah. a penny... Um, you can kill someone on the sidewalk, but like that, that's yeah, not. It's probably got quite a low terminal velocity. Yeah, it's probably not. It's completely happen. not true. Um, like yeah. the momentum just isn't enough. Yeah, you'd have you to shoot it. You'd have to shoot it or like drop something significantly larger. Um, like like a bowling like, ball. Yeah, like a bowling ball. If you drop a bowling ball from a great height, like space, <laughs> like space, that um, might splat someone. That might splat. <laughs> yes. Uh, Please don't do this. Does that um, bring us onto our jelly? Or, or are we not that <laughs> <laughs> We're not there yet. Um, do you want to know how big the space station they're dropping is? I do want to know how big the space it's station 34 is. 34 feet long, which is 10.3 metres. That's a bit bigger than 6 inches. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's not going to be 10. Point, it's probably not going to be that long when it 
arrive. arrive. <laughs> uh, uh, it's 9.4 tons, or mm-hmm. 8.5 metric tons. Could, can we just stick to the real units and use metric? Yeah, I'll just stick to that. Well, I keep reading the metric. Please don't write in if you are a fan of imperial units. <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, moved on. <laughs> there's a uh, if you go to space.com, there's an article on this. They have a beautiful plot of where the debris is uh, likely to land, including regions where it's completely unlikely to land, regions where it's more likely to land, and regions where it's got the highest probability of landing. And are any of them on the ground? Uh, some of them are on the ground. Well, hopefully they're all on the ground. What? I mean, like, some might be in the sea. Oh, right. I, 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 I just had this image of, of just bits of rocket that had given up halfway <laughs> to the floor. <laughs> just stopped. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> if, you are, if you are Canadian, uh, or British, or from Northern Europe, or Russia, you're probably okay. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> if you are from the southern part of um, Argentina... You're probably fine. If you're a resident of Antarctica, you're probably absolutely fine. Apart from the fact you might be cold. Yeah, yeah. you might be a penguin. <laughs> that would be pretty fun. I'd quite enjoy that, I think. I know. However, Waddle around, huddle up, They're so much smaller swim. than you expect. Mm, they yeah, are, like, yeah. Emperor penguins are only about a metre tall. Yeah, you expect them to be like humans, right? Yeah, you when you, you know, see them on the telly, you know? <laughs> you never see them next to each other. Sorry, we've completely seen them. completely Fortunately, no penguins were harmed in the making of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we or, did strap a few to or the a rocket. <laughs> <laughs> or the destruction of the Chang, uh, Changdong 1 space station. Hey, that's yet to be seen. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. We, we hope. There, there might be some in zoos in the, in the more likely areas. So. Mm. They're also native to the mm. southern parts of Argentina, that's which true. is also fine. Yeah. And they do sometimes swim up to uh, the sort of a Southern American coast as well sometimes. Oh, so, like, southern American, how the, how's the Southern American coast looking, Joel? Oh, uh, sort of in the uh, slightly more probable to be hit. Oh, oh no, the penguins. The, However, <laughs> However, it's not directly under the track of the um, actual satellite. It's just in the okay. region where... However, uh, the bottom bit of Florida is just underneath the, one, of the, <laughs> one of the routes that the uh, satellite takes. What? This is not to say you're more likely to be hit if you're underneath this track. It's quite a large area of of ground. I mean, you're still arguably ever so slightly more likely. It's just yeah. not very... And it's the first floor <laughs> to get the hurricanes, and now they, and get, now they get the satellites. space debris. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of ground compared... Um, catch a break. Yeah. There's, a lot, there's a lot of Earth's surface compared to where people are that is uh, likely to be hit. I mean, I mean the majority sea, right? Yeah. So. I mean, it's two-thirds of the Earth's surface is the area that some of this t- uh, debris land. Um, so yeah. you, you're not likely to be hit unless you win the lottery lots. Complete and utter segue, but talking of people crash-landing or things crash-landing, yeah. did you hear that they um, found Amelia Earhart's... Uh, no. Like, um... Well, they found her plane. Why yeah, is that they, not so your order then? What? I just kind of heard this fleetingly, so I've not, like, looked up as to whether it's completely true, but they fa- they found a body that they are going to be doing... So, oh, I say a body, a skeleton, obviously, now, but they, they found a skeleton which they're going to be doing some sort of, like, genetic trace on to see if it could be in the hut. So that could solve the issue of where she um, like disappeared to. Um. Yeah, okay. I've, I've just found the BBC article from four days ago, mm-hmm. uh, so the 8th of March, um, saying that uh, they'd recovered bones on a Pacific island that are likely 
Yeah, exactly. Um, likely rather to be, than definite. But. To be those of Amelia Earhart. Mm-hmm. Um, according to a US peer-reviewed science journal. And as we all know, as soon as you put in the words peer-reviewed science it's journal... It's true. It's <laughs> <not> <laughs> true. Uh, I had um, some speech marks here, inverted uh, commas, uh, around that true there. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the report claims they're a 99% match. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's a really cool segue. I did. I'm, I'm reading this um, later. So I, anyway, I get back onto the space. <laughs> so we give you space news and not space news. No, <laughs> space news and aerospace. Well, yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's early. Stuff, yeah. It was it's it's the early lead into space tech. We mm. went from flying to like the first flight to man on the moon within four, within fifty years. Yeah, so it's pretty impressive. Yeah, isn't it? right. that was an incredible timeline. Mm. Okay. So over to you, Josh, for your odd and end. <laughs> yeah, um, so, <laughs> thanks, Joel. Um, I, so I wanted to talk about um, something um, that is being going to be used on space stations that aren't hurtling towards Earth. Um, so on the ISS, the International Space Station, um, Airbus have um, developed a, a, um, a robot called Simon. Um, spelled C-I-M-O-N um, which uh, I really hope they're going to play Simon Says <laughs> yeah well yeah I mean there, there are multiple images in here captions Simon Says hello <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it's it stands for the uh, the Crew Interactive Mobile Companion um, okay. where they've just contrived that as much as they possibly can because that's not that's not how Simon is spelled. Everything um, in science, acronym-wise, is contrived. Yes. Um, Generally true. Yeah, but um, what, so what, what they have is they've basically got a, um, a, a ball, a plastic ball with a screen in the front of it. Um, the, the idea of it is it's a 3D printed um, from metal and plastic and is described by its pre- creators as a kind of flying brain. Um, that just sounds very odd. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so the, the the idea here is that it's basically a, um, a an autonomous spherical um, computer um, okay. that just kind of floats about in the space station by um, itself. Yeah, by itself. It so just wanders around. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, okay. they, they, they I, I haven't found anything that explicitly says how it moves, but I assume it's just compressed air um, rather than rocket fuel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> One would hope they've not. Yeah. Just Put a load of rocket fuel and let it roll round the yeah. ISS. <laughs> but, um, so it, it kind of it, it, it's there to display readouts when you need them if you're doing work or whatever, or present an image of a friendly face. Um, the, well, that sounds nice. The image that is that accompanies this um, this article is terrifying. <laughs> um, so, oh I, wow, Josh has oh, just shown us, yeah. and it is a little bit. I, I, there is a Doctor Who episode. It looks about like it. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure there, there, there is one of the most recent Doctor Who episodes with the um, with the emoji bots. Yeah, the emoji bots. Um, it just kind of resembles this, but it's like a line drawing of a face. Um, but they've managed. I really hope it doesn't get sentient. That yeah. would be a bit creepy. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll link to the article if you want to if you want to actually see this. But the thing that really gets me is that they've managed to do. Somehow they've managed to do that thing where, that they do in like Renaissance paintings, where the eyes follow you around the room because they're not exactly out. <laughs> and like they, this is staring oh, anything that makes it creepier. Yeah, like, it, it's slightly it's following me as I move. Right? <laughs> um, but like, like all jokes aside, this this is really cool. Mm. Um, like it's um, does it actually give a so what's the purpose of this? What, what's it going to so be doing? 
Um, so it's an, as an intelligent machine, Simon could help the ISS crew to solve problems during their routine work by processing and displaying diagnostic data. So if they're bumbling about, whatever. Uh, astronauts don't bumble. <laughs> um, but if they're bumbling, um, and Simon comes along and si Simon says, I, uh, you should maybe think about doing this, or look, this would improve your product. And we all know if Simon says, yeah. you have to do it. Do they play a weird, awful Simon Says where like he, the, the robot <laughs> says things, but doesn't say Simon Says? And, and then they, they do it, it and it's like, oh, actually, no. <laughs> Simon Says. Pull this lever. Wait, you didn't say Simon Says. Wrong lever, Um Get inside the airlock. <laughs> Simon didn't say. <laughs> Actually, in space, no one can hear you say. No. Um, yeah, so the, watch out when you're next going on a spacewalk. <laughs> yeah, like I, this, it, it kind of has a like. So like it. So basically, that like this, this is a neural network. Like this is this is a, this is an intelligent. Machine that learns, um, and it's supposed to also have. Um, so its neural network is supposed to work like the human brain. So it's not just displaying information; it's also engaging with the astronauts as a colleague. Is the intention, like according to what Airbus is saying. Like um, those, like, hello friend things on MSN when we were kids. Yeah, but I, I think it's slightly more sophisticated. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, I, 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 I really can't, like, I, I, this is so cool, but there's also part of me that, having watched quite a lot of Black Mirror, is screaming. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's this floating, friendly face. It's definitely going to take over the ISS. Oh, yeah. When you say Dave? it's a neural network thing, so it's going to learn a bit. Yeah, so, I, I, like, that's the intention, I think. Mm. Like, I, I haven't looked at any of the software. Right. I don't think I would be able to get access to any of the software, <laughs> even if I wanted to. Well, the neural network's a black box anyway. So yeah, like, it's, it's, it's like interferometry. No one knows how that works anymore. <laughs> you, you just plug some stuff in to a computer and it gives you an image. Right? <laughs> We're well beyond the year 2001, but this yeah. is certainly a little bit 2001 space on Yeah, it, it is. It definitely <laughs> is. I've never seen it. This is my admission on the Jodcast. I have never seen 2001 A Space Odyssey. Dun, 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 dun. That was <laughs> that was weirdly not. <laughs> that was weirdly the uncanny valley of. Yeah, that, but I'm not thing. allowed to actually sing the proper one well, it because we don't have the right. That was, that, was, that was closer to Mastermind than anything else. That sounds pretty cool, though. That, yeah, that no, right. So, so, yeah, no, I like in 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 summary, there is now a floating intelligent space head um, <laughs> on the ISS, or there will be soon. Um, cool. And now um, we're going to move on to our own local floating intelligent space heads um, with Ask an Astronomer. So um, here is Unsung Lee uh, asking George Bendo your space questions. Philip Rushton asks. If neutron stars spin because of the conservation of angular momentum, do black holes spin too, and how fast? Well, yes, black holes do spin because they too conserve the angular momentum of either the objects that form the black hole or the things that have fallen into the black hole. The best research that I've found on this focuses specifically on supermassive black holes at the centers of nearby galaxies. A lot of black holes have disks of gas called accretion disks that are orbiting black holes, 
and the part of the accretion disks near the event horizon gets very hot and produces X-ray emission. In the most recent research, modeling the hard X-ray emission from the parts of the accretion disk that are closest to the event horizon indicates that the black holes must be rotating at close to the speed of light. For reference, when black holes rotate, this causes the shape of the event horizon to deviate from the spherical shape, which was originally proposed by Carl Schwarzschild, to resemble something that's more oblate in shape, as proposed by Roy Kerr. This change in shape of the event horizon as a function of rotation is one of the main reasons why it's possible to use models of emission from near the event horizon to determine how fast black hole is rotating. James Walters asks, what would we see or experience on Earth if the black hole at the center of our galaxy was active? So, for reference, one of the more recent estimates for the mass of a black hole, or technically black hole candidate, at the center of our galaxy, which is called Sagittarius A-star, is about 4 million solar masses, or 4 million times the mass of the Sun. In terms of the types of supermassive black holes that you find at the centers of galaxies, this is on the small side. My guess would be that if this black hole was actively accreting matter and ejecting gas and jets, that would look something like a smaller version of the AGN and Centaurus A. And that black hole has a mass which is about 10 times larger than Sagittarius A star. So we would probably see jets of ionized gas ejected perpendicular to the accretion disk, that would most likely appear above and below the Milky Way, as seen from Earth, and these jets would produce electromagnetic radiation ranging from X-rays to radio waves. These jets, as well as the nucleus itself, would appear relatively bright in the sky in terms of X-ray and radio emission specifically, and they would look very bright compared to most other objects in the Milky Way. But, at least in terms of X-ray emission, the sun would still be a brighter source. The region near the black hole itself would probably still be obscured by the interstellar dust in the Milky Way, including the interstellar dust that's very close to the center of the Milky Way. But we may see very strong infrared emission from the accretion disk around this black hole. Owen Green asks, I've been interested in kelp as it is with typical astronomer's humor, named a kilodegree extremely little telescope. What I'm interested in, though, is knowing why it's described as the kilodegree telescope. My understanding is that its field of view is a lot less than 1,000 square degrees. Can you investigate why it has the name? For listeners' reference, this question was sent in after a discussion in the July 2017 Jotcast about a discovery from this telescope. KELT is effectively a large camera lens which has been placed in front of a professional astronomical CCD detector. While the telescope is small, it is optimal for making repeated observations of a very large area of the sky, which is very useful for detecting the slight dimming of bright stars when an exoplanet passes in front of them. However, as this listener points out, 
Kelp does not observe an area of 1,000 square degrees. Its detector only covers an angular area of 26 by 26 degrees, which is equivalent to 676 square degrees. To find out why it was called the Kilodegree Extremely Little Telescope, I contacted Professor Josh Peppers at Lehigh University, who's one of the lead people on the project. He gave me three reasons why they kept Kilodegree in the name. First, they wanted to emphasize that the telescope covers a wide angular area, and Kilodegree emphasized this. Even though the telescope did not quite cover a thousand square degrees, they thought that it was close enough to use the term kilodegree. I personally do not quite agree with that specific reasoning, but Josh Papers stated that this was part of the reason why they chose this name, so I have to list it here. Second, in a paper led by Josh Peppers in 2002 that describes the theoretical concepts behind the design of the telescope, the authors wrote an equation where the variables just happened to spell Kelt. They thought that this was so cool that they decided to use that name for the telescope that they described in that 2002 paper. Third, the people developing this telescope chose kilodegree extremely little telescope to make fun of other telescopes that were being proposed or constructed at the time that emphasized their very large size, such as, for example, the Very Large Telescope. One of those proposed telescopes was the California Extremely Large Telescope, or CELT. The people working on CELT chose their name in part as a humorous reference to CELT. Later, however, CELT changed its name to the 30-meter telescope, so this part of the joke no longer worked. So, to summarize, the K in CELT stands for kilodegree, in part because it sounds cooler than using 676 square degree, and in part because the people working on the telescope wanted an acronym that spelled CELT. Thanks for that, and Song and George. So, on to the feedback. Um, we have had a couple of tweets. Um, so That's exciting. Th- this is always exciting. We Ooh. we like tweets here. Um, so, uh, the one that I kind of, like, I, I really liked was uh, Yoda the Oak um, sent us a... Yoda the Oak? Yoda the Oak. <laughs> Brilliant. Fantastic <laughs> username. Um, uh, they sent us a... Um, they sent us a link to some cake-making... Um, recipes uh, where all the cakes look like planets. Oh, awesome. Um, that is fun. So, so spherical. Yeah, so spherical, <laughs> spherical but also um, also like looks like Jupiter. Okay, that's cool. Okay, um, yeah, we, we need to make some of these. Yeah. To make some of these. Yeah. So oh, now I, 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 I really want to. <laughs> I doubt we do um, it justice. I mean, if we, we could have a go and then take a photo and put it on the website. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, like, I mean, so, like, they, they are, they are really, oh, hang on. Uh, yeah, no, they're, they're really cool. Um, oh wow, that's yeah, impressive! That's yeah, that's <laughs> really impressive. They are really cool. Yeah. Um, I really think we should. Give we it should a go. definitely have a crack at that. Yeah, like some like Friday night office. We can embarrass ourselves. Yeah, that would be yeah. awesome. Um, we well, yeah. watch this space. <laughs> at the very least, if we burn it, we, if we burn it, we can just call it mercury. Right? That's true. That's true. Um, if we burn it enough, we can call it a black hole. Ooh, ooh. But they're. Uh, if we burn it enough, we can call it re-entered space debris. Oh, yes. And then throw uh, it at someone. Yeah, and then throw it at someone. <laughs> but only if it's about six inches long and made out of aluminium. Don't worry, we will not target a penguin. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, 
So um, we also had uh, a tweet from Emma McIntosh, uh, who says uh, she really enjoyed the train of thought diversion on the March podcast about the Falcon Heavy launch and the Wok-sized UFO. Um, also, pronunciations on the Star forecast are interesting. Uh, Gemini and Sagittarius, um, which I think are attempts to transcribe pronunciations. I haven't listened to that bit, so I can't comment. But we, um, so we, we were all involved in that last month's um, show. So thank yeah, you very much for that. Coming regular, don't yeah, we? Yeah. Thanks, um, Emma. Thank, thank you, Emma. <laughs> um, but uh, we also thought we, so we were discussing last month about um, a, a centrifuge system to launch rockets. I think was that your that was my that, that was your was, member, yeah. wasn't it? And um, like, so uh, the concept was basically instead of a first stage, you strap a rocket. We we couldn't quite yeah. work out what was actually yeah. meant so, to be happening. So they had a lot. It was shrouded in mystery a bit because obviously it's all private, so they won't be sharing their details. But from the article, it basically sounded like they were strapped through a centrifuge and just spin it really fast, spin, like spin it, let go in a, in a vacuum, and then just have at it essentially. Yeah. But so, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, I, we we kind of we went away after this, and we we sort of looked at the actual numbers that yeah. were involved. Back of the envelope like, calculation, the envelope here calculation. we go. And Joel, Joel is the person who originally just kind of got really infuriated by this. He was stood in the office just pointing at a whiteboard going, it doesn't work! <laughs> and I'm sure it does actually work. We have no idea how they're actually trying to do this. Exactly. But like, but Joel... I'm sure. I'm sure the way they're going to do this is much smarter than uh, strapping a rocket to a spinning centrifuge and then letting go. <laughs> However... For a fun calculation, you can all do at home. <laughs> we have worked out the centripetal acceleration on the rocket strapped to a centrifuge. So, the the speed they suggest that you uh, they want to get the rocket to is uh, three thousand miles per hour. Is that right? I believe that's, yeah, that's correct. There, or at least that's what was mentioned in this article. Yeah, in their article. Um, so that's uh, that translates to a um, 1,341.12 meters per second, give or take. <laughs> um, <laughs> give or take, you're on two decimal place precision. If you all remember physics classes in high school, to calculate accel- centripetal acceleration, it's v squared over r, where v is the velocity, uh, the linear velocity. And R is the radius. So, if we build a 200 meter radius centrifuge, which is pretty big, which is pretty big, like, <laughs> um, we get some massive number, um, and then we have to divide by g to work out how many g this uh, this uh, the acceleration of the um, of the object that's being put. So this, so this is so we can compare it to the yeah, so we can compare it to the gravity of Earth, yeah. So, so we want to divide by 9.81 meters per second per second, and uh, we in fact get 916 g. That's a lot. That's a lot. For oh, reference, people pass out at about oh, a six, I think, mm. is normal. Is normal um, people pass out? I have a feeling that would just cause jellification, right, Josh? Yeah. So um, <laughs> you definitely die at 16 or something. Like yeah, that. so like, so for co- like for comparison, Jupiter, um, which is the largest planet in the solar system, for those that don't know, um, has a surface gravity of about um, 2.5 g. Yeah. So that... That <laughs> we're talking very high. <laughs> so if it's a rocket strapped to a centrifuge, the centrifuge has to be much, much, much bigger than that. So we thought, what if we build a centrifuge as big as CERN? <laughs> CERN as in the Large Hadron Collider part of CERN. Is yeah. What we're so talking. they're twenty twenty-seven <laughs> kilometers across, 
Um, and that gets us down to a, uh, a nice, comfortable 13.5 AG. That is survivable, just. just. That, that is survivable. <laughs> I don't think you'd be doing very well after it. Yeah. But. <laughs> so what, so what, what I think we're trying to say is that the way that you should launch a rocket is to put it in a Large Hadron Collider um, and spin it and then just sort of prop the end up on books. Oh, yeah, yeah. And definitely then definitely on books. Definitely Once books. you've dug the whole thing up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, because no, you, you only need to dig one end. Oh, yeah. Right? You dig, get, oh, <laughs> yeah definitely. Push it out sideways. You, you, yeah, well, you, you, dig, you dig out one end and kind of like clear it up and then pick it up like a hoop. And then the other end lifting up earth just builds more ramp. Mm. Oh, yeah. So one of our friends is actually at CERN at the minute, so maybe we could call him and see if he can uh, <laughs> have a chat with the director, see if they'll like, let us do that. It would be really useful just while you're not doing any experiments. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. just every now and again. Um, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's quite a big centrifuge. <laughs> it's quite a big centrifuge. <laughs> I mean, yeah. CERN is larger than the town that is... Like, like, well, a yeah, lot well, of it goes, it goes it's in, it's crossed several, yeah, yeah, several it's, countries, yeah, right? It's, so, uh, it's quite large. Mm-hmm. That's a very silly centrifuge. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, this was a very silly segment as well. Yeah, like, I, like, like, so clearly, <laughs> clearly they're doing something different, but I thought that would be, I would know, love, amusing, to, I'd right? love to know what it is. I'm <laughs> really curious. <laughs> I, I still want it to be a 27 kilometer Ferris wheel. That would be amazing. I was, I was sort of wishing it was some sort of trebuchet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, when you said catapulting, I was like, trebuchet, space trebuchet. That's what we want. Yeah, you just have to put it on top of a really tall mountain, and then and then pick up another mountain and use oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to start it on Jupiter where the surface gravity is higher. There we go. Yeah, sure. No, don't question it. Don't <laughs> question it. <laughs> just accept it. We'll move on. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> Any more feedback? <laughs> uh, that's all I have uh, here. So if you want to get in touch yourselves, uh, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. At Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast and don't forget that you can send us posts and the address is on the website okay so that's all we've got time for today um, thanks to Adam and Helen for the interviews uh, the editors were Adam Amerson uh, Jin Ji and Emma Alexander uh, the producer was Naomi Asambra Frimprong until next time Jod on, on.